You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Um, we're jumping back into our sermon series through Galatians, and it's uh, kind of cool because our Easter message from last week actually serves as a great segue for today, and uh, it's also cool because Brad kind of summed it up for us at the beginning of the service today. Um, and that Easter Sunday, we learned that through Jesus, we've been set free. We've been given a new life, right? And But after being set free, the obvious next question we have to ask ourselves is, now what? Now what? We've been set free, so now what? Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So how do we stand firm? How do we, how do we not submit again to a yoke of slavery? And you might remember that this yoke of slavery he's talking about is the law of Moses. The Galatians have started to follow it again because they thought that doing uh, religious works or legalism was necessary for their salvation and, and to make God pleased with them. So the Apostle Paul's reminding them with, the, with this letter, that that's the theme of this letter, right? That in Christ we don't have to do legalistic work to please God or become righteous. God's already and completely pleased in us through the perfect work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Through faith in Jesus, then, we're saved, not by works, but by his grace alone. We're saved by grace. But here's where the application of grace, this, this freedom we've been given from the law, often gets a little twisted. We, we, we often twist uh, what, what God's given us, right? And it maybe even becomes a little Lord of the Flies-like because... Um, as an article I read on Ligonier.com states, from the start, people have taken advantage of the Lord's mercy and have misread the gospel of grace as a license for sin. So it's no surprise that it's pretty common for people to misinterpret this newfound freedom that we have from religious works as an excuse or even as, as permission to, to now do whatever and, and live however we want. But this is what happens when we define freedom wrong. So in the passage this morning, we'll be talking about this, as well as learning about what it truly looks like when we get freedom right. So if you want to turn with me to Galatians 5, we're going to be starting at verses, verse 13 and going to verse 26. So Galatians 5, 13 to 26. And I liked that Tim prayed for us to uh, soften our hearts because we'll, we'll need that this morning as we go through this passage. Galatians 5, 13 to 26 says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There's a lot going on there, right? So let's pray again. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can be gathered here this morning, boldly entering into your presence, filled with your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would would soften our hearts, as Tim prayed earlier, that we would receive what you have for us this morning, that you would write it on our hearts, that you would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in in January, you guys might have read or heard about this, um, a 35-year-old man from Coaldale went on trial for sexually assaulting two 14-year-old girls who he'd lured on Facebook, which is repulsive to even think about, right? But what's even more tragic and disappointing about this story, though, is that it wasn't the first time he'd been convicted. He actually has a 14-year history of assault and had only just been released from prison five years earlier after serving a previous sentence for the same crime. This is what's called recidivism. I'm not super smart. That's a word I just learned this week. But in layman's terms, it's what's known as being a repeat offender. A repeat offender. So that's when someone is is sentenced to prison for a crime that they committed, and then they, they serve their time, and in Canada, they'll go through the rehabilitation program. And then after their time is served or for good behavior is then reintegrated back into society only to use their newfound freedom, because no one's looking at them anymore, to turn around and commit the same crime again, right? That's a repeat offender. And while I'm not ready or willing to to publicly comment on our nation's justice system or the effectiveness of our prison rehabilitation program, but the reason I bring this up is because it's such a great example of how Christians tend to misinterpret and abuse the freedom that we've been given. Because like a criminal who's been released from prison, we've also been freed from the confines and and the slavery of the law. Which existed to keep sinners in line and and conform their their behavior, right? But like an 18-year-old who finally moves out of his, his parents' house, right? Now that we've been set free from its oversight, what what will we do with that freedom? What do we do with that freedom? On that note, N.T. Wright comments, This little tale is about the use and abuse of freedom. It is one thing to be set free from prison or slavery, and quite another to decide what to do with your freedom when you've got it. 
Will I use this freedom to commit the same crime or the same sins? Will will I use this freedom to turn my life around? Or will I use this freedom to live however I want? And on that note, like I said earlier, it's it's certainly easy to think that since the rules and and commandments of the law of Moses aren't for us anymore because Jesus fulfilled them, then that must mean there are no more rules. And if there aren't any rules, then, then all things must be permissible, or, 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 or at the very least, sin and morality must now be arbitrary. And just like that, with that line of thinking, we, we become repeat offenders. We're set free from the prison of the law, only to turn around and commit the same crimes that made the law necessary in the first place. This is what some call greasy grace, as uh, my mom reminded me of that phrase this week, greasy grace, right? When we use grace as as permission to serve ourselves and to freely sin, thinking that Jesus will love us and forgive us no matter what, right? So we're taking advantage of his grace. But while we might use this train of thought to justify our selfish actions or our lifestyles, in reality, it it just doesn't make any sense. First of all, because God doesn't change. His holiness doesn't change, right? His moral law was given to Moses as a reflection of his holiness to keep his people set apart and holy, right? So think of this. Why would God set us free only, only so that we could turn around and, and act in contrast to who he is? It doesn't make any sense. In actuality, then, Paul's reminding us here that if our hearts have truly been changed by Christ, our lives should be even more in line with who God is. When Jesus saved the woman caught in adultery, what did he tell her? Go and, and do whatever you want? No. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, now that you're free from judgment, you're forgiven, now, now go and, and just do whatever you wish, right? No, he said, you're forgiven, you're set free, so that means you can go and sin no more. What I'm saying is Jesus didn't set us free from the weight of our sin and the curse of the law only only to become repeat offenders. He set us free so that we can live in a way that we've never known before. He set us free so that we can be holy as he is holy. I think part of the problem, though, is our misunderstanding of the word freedom in our culture. Apologist Abdi Murray writes, this he says we need to understand the foundations for freedom itself because freedom has become a confused concept today we have mistaken autonomy for freedom they are related but different concepts in a post-truth culture where preferences and opinions are elevated over facts and truth anything that challenges our preferences even if a challenge is laced with facts is deemed offensive or oppressive So what he's saying is that we tend to interpret anything that restricts our, our behavior or our, our speech or, or, or our preferences as a direct assault on our freedom, right? Things like rules, commandments, people in authority over us, differing opinions, stuff like that. It, it becomes offensive to our freedom. We think no, no one can tell me what to do, right? 
Everyone's, everyone's offended these days by this. This is especially the case in our, our current relativistic or post-truth culture that we live in, right? The, the, the consensus today is that we should be able to think and live in any way that we want, whatever feels good, whatever feels right to us, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, of course. But unless a person is getting in the way of letting me live or feel however I want, then we can hurt them. And many so-called Christians have embraced this way of thinking. But as Abdi Marie continues to write, this isn't freedom. It's autonomy. And while we typically understand freedom to be the power to exercise choice without constraint, freedom becomes chaotic in a system without constraint. Freedom operates at its best within the confines of the truth. So just for further clarification, the word autonomy comes from the Greek root words autos, which means self, and nomos, or nomos, I don't know how to say it in Greek, which means law. Okay, so literally autonomy means self-law or self-governed, however you want to interpret that. So autonomy gives us permission to personally decide not only how to live our lives, but also allows us to define morality on our own terms, what's good and bad, what's wrong or right, what's useful or not, what's socially acceptable or not. And, and while our current cultural, cultural climate has, has been increasingly embracing this form of thought under the guise of tolerance or whatever, the, the truth is that autonomy or being a law unto ourselves has been the goal of humanity since Adam and Eve tried to transcend God's purpose for them in the garden. The idolatry of autonomy is what got us into this sinful mess in the first place. Judges 17 verse 6 describes Israel's state later on when it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. No, no authority, no laws, right? And what, what, what happened? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when you're only interested and doing what's right in your own eyes, it's unlikely you'll be interested in the truth or the, or the opinions of others unless it benefits you in some way. Doing what's right according to my own preferences, my self-interest, my personal feelings, my autonomy is actually what Paul warns against when he writes in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You weren't set free from the law so that you could run off and, and sin and be a law unto yourself. Even more than that, if we think about it, you know, the issues and, and problems and chaos which autonomy creates in both communities and relationships, relationships should be self-evident. Right? And, and it's apparent in our culture today but only if we actually take a, a moment to look beyond our, ourself and our own interests. It's no wonder that Paul warns the Galatians in verse 15, but, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. He says that because if, if, if all we're doing is living for the flesh, if everyone's making up their own rules and living for their own self-gratification, how can this not result in, in a Lord of the Flies type scenario? 
Right? How can this not result in anarchy and in chaos and disagreement and envy and entitlement and frustration and abuse and dissensions and on and on? You know, how, how can it not result in people using one another for their own gain or stepping on those who contradict them or question them? And if we as, as Christians start to interpret the freedom that we've been given in this way, then yes, we'll, we'll start devouring one another. We'll become, as it says in verse 26, conceited, provoking one another envying one another that's not freedom i don't want to live in that that's chaos that's it's slavery romans 6 15 to 16 says what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace our culture would be like yes and he says by no means Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? In other words, does grace give us permission to live however we want? No. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. In fact, living for ourselves, defining our own personal morality and appeasing our selfish preferences is, is actually in direct opposition to God. Right? We, we can either serve sin... Or serve God. And it can't be both. Paul defines these two perspectives for us with the terms desires of the flesh, which is that self-gratification, and then walking in the spirit, which is, which is living by truth in the power of God. Verses 16 to 17, he says then, I, I say then, walk by the spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. Those these are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Again, we tend to think freedom is living for ourselves and doing whatever we want. When in fact, living for ourselves is actually in direct opposition to living in freedom. It's opposed to who we've been set free to be. Which means there's no happy medium here. We're either walking in the flesh or we're living in righteousness. But as I said earlier, it's so common for us to think that, that sin is, is arbitrary or that morality is fluid. Quite often we tend to base our morality and ethics on social norms or whatever is culturally acceptable or, or legal today. Right? Like, for example, getting, getting drunk or being promiscuous. Right? Though clearly laid out as being sins in the Bible, these are acceptable social norms today, encouraged. So it's popular to justify these things as Christians by saying, oh, it's 2019, right? We're, we're modern now. All that stuff's fine now. And, and God loves us no matter what because Jesus. And, and there's no rules anymore anyway. So just chillax. Stop being, stop being so rigid, right? We can do whatever we want now. But that's a clear abuse of grace. And as we read this morning, an even clearer misinterpretation of what freedom is. Yet it works for their life choices because it's self-gratifying. It serves the flesh. We think it's freedom. Society agrees with us. But the truth is that if we're slaves to f the flesh, we'll never be satisfied. We'll, we'll never be free. Because to be free is to be satisfied. And satisfaction can only come from Jesus, the bread of life, the living water that never runs dry. So yes, 
Jesus has set us free from the confines of the law. But as we find our new identity and satisfaction in him, in his truth, he also sets us free from the desire to be self-serving. Free from constantly having to chase after that, that next thrill, that next fix, that next boost of self-esteem, that, that desire to, to keep up with the Joneses or whatever, right? And, and this is amazing. Because again, the flesh is never satisfied. Living for yourself is perpetually exhausting, constantly chasing that dangling carrot in front of you. It's slavery. Galatians 5, 24 to 25 says, says this, and, and it's amazing. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if, so if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So again, to be satisfied and set free in Christ means we should now be able to shift the focus off of ourselves, off of our need to, to gratify our selfish desires so that we're able instead to love God and love others as we walk in step with the indwelling Spirit of God. That's freedom. And not only that, but to love God and love others actually fulfills the law of God in and of itself. Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all, all the law and the prophets is fulfilled in those two commandments. If we're loving God and we're loving others, we'll actually end up fulfilling the requirements of the law anyway, which is good because the law is still a reflection of God's holiness. But the reason we're set free from it is so that we can actually reflect God and live for him in an even better and deeper way. This is why Paul writes in verse 14, for the, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. He's echoing Jesus' words here, reminding them that, that, our, that our freedom from the law exists because we've, given the, we've been given the power and a new heart to fulfill it in a much more fully and, and completely way by genuinely loving others. So yes, we're still called to obedience. We're still called to be obedience to God, obedient to God to live in accordance with who he is and who he created us to be. Jesus did say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll love God. You'll love others. You'll make disciples. So our obedience to the truth of Christ is the evidence of, of our heart change. John, John 8, 31, 32, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's saying freedom can only be experienced and, and expressed within the confines of knowing and abiding in the truth, knowing and obeying the Word of God. When we know the truth, we're set free to walk in it. The difference, though, is that in Christ we don't need to be coerced or, or forced to walk in it, like those who are under the law. But rather, if we're walking in the Spirit, we'll desire to walk in it. We'll, we'll, we'll desire to serve 
and be obedient to God. Which is important as well because as, as Jesus points out to us in the Sermon on the Mount, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, he, he tells us that the law goes deeper than just following a bunch of rules. It's way, it's way deeper than that. It's about our motivation. It's about our heart. For example, where the law says, don't murder, Jesus teaches that it's deeper than just not murdering someone. He says, if you even think hateful thoughts about someone, you're just as guilty. So we need a heart change in order to truly be set free, in order to truly follow God. And again, only Jesus can do that in us. So the difference is is our motivations. The difference is that in Christ, we've been given a new identity, a new heart, a new purpose, a new life, a new spirit, set free from our old nature, no, no longer requiring the law to keep us in check because it's who we are now, because the Spirit guides us in it. 1 John 5, 3-5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have overcome. We've overcome. And and what have we overcome? Not only our sin, but everything that comes with it, right? The the shame, the the guilt, the the punishment, the chains of addiction, the, the temptation to sin, our selfish desires, our pride, all of that. Jesus took all of that and gave us authority over all of it. We're no longer slaves or or victims to, to the flesh or to the things of the world anymore. So why would we use our newfound freedom to become slaves to it again? And in the same vein, because we've overcome and because we've been set free from all of that, our call to follow and love God to obey his commandments, isn't, isn't a burden. It's not burdensome anymore. It's not slavery anymore. But it's our joy. It's freeing. It's our proper response to grace. It's the love of God working in us. Let me say this. I, I've said it before throughout this series, but let me say it again. If, if being a Christian feels like a burden, and I'm not talking about suffering for Christ. That's different. That's, that's part of who we are as Christians. What I mean is if it feels like a chore, if it feels like slavery, if it feels like it's a duty rather than a joy, then the truth is you probably haven't fully surrendered to Christ. To surrender to Christ is to be set free. Free to live the way we were created to live. And on that same note, the next question is, you know, how, how do we know for sure if we are walking by the Spirit or if we're still walking in the flesh? Well, Paul tells us, right? We, we, we can just take a look at our lives, he says, and, and see where the evidence leads. He says the works of the flesh are obvious and they're self-centered. The fruit of the Spirit is also evident. It produces selflessness. And he gives us some examples. Galatians 5, 19 to, to 21. Again. 
He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And he says, I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice how all these are are self-serving and self-obsessed actions. Again, it's because when we walk in the flesh, our concern is with the self, with, with my desires, with my personal ambitions over anyone else's, with satisfying my passions and, and lusts, with, with sexual immorality and drunkenness and sorcery, he says, which probably means stuff like getting into New Age manifestations or divination or chasing after strange spiritual experiences you know, for the rush or, or whatever, right? That stuff was popular back then and it's becoming popular today. And of course, this self-serving, self-gratifying lifestyle leads to entitlement, which leads to justifying using others for our personal gain, as well as becoming jealous and envious and even hurtful to those who have more than us or who aren't like us. Ultimately, the flesh, our sinful nature, seeks after autonomy, and when it's threatened, it becomes angry and hateful and divisive and impatient. So it's no wonder that Paul adds at the end here that those who practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to make a few things clear. First of all, that, that he's not talking about those who commit the odd sin here and there. That's not the issue here. Not, or none of us would qualify, right? None of us are perfect. We're, we're constantly battling between the desires of, of the flesh and the spirit. Sometimes we lose. But there's always grace. There's always grace. In those circumstances, we know that we can confess our sin and God is quick to forgive. But Paul's talking about those who practice such things, which means those who abuse the grace that we've been given and choose to live in idolatry and consistent sin. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And secondly, he's not implying that we can't enjoy things or that we can't have things okay of course of course we can as long as it doesn't lead to idolatry and third he's definitely not trying to tell us that sex is bad or dirty christians have a have a bad rap in making sex be something that's gross or dirty or or horrible so i wanted to make that clear that it's not God designed it to be good, of course, within a mutual and loving covenant relationship. Just read Song of Solomon. But what he's talking about here, as as he describes the evidence of the works of the flesh, is when we take the things which God designed to be good and purposeful, like sex, marriage, prosperity, our, our possessions, his creation, relationships, and then and we take those things and we distort them and we use and we abuse them and we elevate them as idols or worship these things for our own selfish gain and gratification. That's what he's talking about. And, and, and if this is you, he says, you're not actually set free in Christ. 
You're still in slavery to sin. And therefore, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul's not being a meanie here when he says that. He says this precisely because this isn't the type of kingdom God's establishing. These self-gratifying and immoral works are in contrast to who God is. So obviously, they don't belong. And of course, this this self-gratifying attitude definitely isn't the type of attitude that Jesus displayed in his love for us by humbling himself and taking the weight of our sin upon the cross. As his followers, are, are we not to have the mind of Christ who counted others as more significant than his own life? This is why through the gospel that saved us, God's spirit goes to work and all who believe, to transform us, to live like Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to desire what God desires. Which means that while we no longer need the law to live morally, it's not so we can make up our own morals, but it's precisely because we have something stronger to live by, the indwelling Spirit of God. So in contrast to the works of the flesh, Paul defines for us the evidence or fruit of those who walk by the Spirit. Verses 22 to 23 again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. And you, might, you guys might remember that we did a whole series this last summer on the different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. If you missed that, it's online. You can check it out. But I'm not going to... Because of that, I'm not going to get into it too much today, but I have a couple overview points concerning the theme of today's message. So first of all, Paul's emphasizing that if we're living by the Spirit, he says the law is not against such things. So he's saying that if we're living by the Spirit, we cannot be condemned under the law because we're actually in agreement with it. We're actually in agreement with it, but in in a greater and deeper way. And secondly, You might notice that most of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit aren't personal experiences or manifestations. They're actually outward expressions concerning the way we interact with and treat others. He's saying that our inward change will be evident outwardly. If the Spirit is at work in our lives, if we're living and walking in the freedom that Christ has given us, will genuinely love others instead of seeing them as tools for our own gain or lust. We'll have a deep sense of joy rooted in our identity in Christ so we won't feel the need to seek after other idols or experiences to to fill that void and give us joy or meaning. And our joy also enables us to rejoice with others rather than becoming envious or jealous. As we walk in the Spirit, we'll we'll seek to serve and even correct others with with kindness and with patience and with gentleness, not with rash anger or violence or judgment. And we'll do good works unto the Lord and for one, one another, even when it doesn't benefit ourselves. We'll seek for peace and unity in our relationships, even when we disagree on some things, just as Jesus won peace between us and God. Whereas those who walk in the flesh, however, they they don't seek peace. They create division. They create factions. And we'll be patient with others. And we'll be committed. 
And we'll be able to exercise self-control in, in matters and, and temptations where, where others would lose it. And we'll remain steadfast and faithful in our relationship with God, in our callings, and in our relationships with one another. You see, you see, to walk in the Spirit means we've been set free from our selfishness and pride, our desire to sin, so that we can freely love God and love others, so that we can have that selfless mind of Christ. Whereas those who are under the law and those, those who live for the flesh are only slaves to themselves, to their own works and self-gratification. It's slavery because nothing will ever be enough. They'll never be satisfied. They'll never be complete. They'll always be chasing after the next thing, the next fix, the next feeling, the next lay, the next thrill, the next paycheck, needing more and more and more and more. John eight thirty four to 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is, is just a slave to sin. But the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In Christ, we've been set free. Set free from pursuing the sinful things of the world so that we can live and walk in the power of the Spirit. So that we can love God and love others. So that we can indeed be free. Let me say it again and and receive it and, and believe it. In Christ, you're free. You can overcome your temptations. You're no longer a victim. You're, you're no longer a slave to, to shame or fear or lust or, or guilt or, or your terrible upbringing or, or your addictions or your anxiety or your, or your circumstances or your apathy or your selfishness or, or your doubt or your abusive father or your, or your sinful past life or whatever's keeping you in chains. That's all been crucified with Christ. You're set free. You're free to live according to who God created and formed you to be. So in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in that freedom and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery.